Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. My name is David Halperin, and I'm the Executive Director at Israel Policy Forum, filling in today for our usual Tuesday host, our board chair, Susie Gelman. I want to welcome those of you who are joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, and welcome back our returning viewers. For those of you who signed up to hear from Israeli television news anchor Donna Weiss, Donna informed us earlier today that she would be pulled into the studio and unable to join us. And while we are sure to reconnect with Donna sometime in the near future, we are truly grateful to our friend Haaretz's Amir Tibon for being available not only on short notice, but on this incredibly newsworthy day and what promises to be a very newsworthy week. Uh, between the twin crises in Jerusalem and Gaza last month, and this week's fast-moving Israeli political developments, Israel Policy Forum remains committed to providing timely resources, analysis, and policy recommendations, engaging with U.S. policymakers, American Jewish community leaders, and emerging leaders of the next generation. And especially this week, Israel Policy Forum is providing a number of opportunities to unpack the political developments and the policy possibilities. In addition to this timely webinar today, I hope you will all join us again tomorrow evening at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 Pacific, for a truly special program we are calling a Realistic Reset, Restoring U.S. Leadership on the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. This unique event will include U.S. officials, top analysts, and Israeli and Palestinian grassroots activists exploring the path forward just two weeks from the latest round of conflict between Israel and Hamas. We have an absolutely stellar lineup of guests, and I encourage you to register, find out more information, and register online at ipf.li slash 2 June. That is ipf.li, the number 2 June. But that's not all. We will convene yet again uh, this coming Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific for yet another important program during this really big week. Uh, at that time, we'll hear from the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey, and we'll have an update on the latest fast-moving developments in Israel, the political developments, uh, with Israeli journalists Barack Ravid of Axios and Tal Schneider of the Times of Israel. You'll receive information, notifications about how to register for that Thursday program following today's webinar. And you can get information on all of these opportunities by visiting our website, israelpolicyforum.org. And I must say that this week, uh, I'm especially proud that Israel Policy Forum is providing such a tremendous amount uh, of credible analysis and top-notch resources uh, at such a critical moment for the future of politics and policy in the region. And this work is really made possible by you, our supporters. If you do not yet support our work, I encourage you to do so by visiting israelpolicyforum.org slash support. Now on to today's program. It looks like Israel could be on the cusp of having a new prime minister for the first time in 12 years. With Naftali Bennett this weekend announcing his preparedness to assume the premiership as part of a unity agreement with Yair Lapid. But looks can be deceiving. Uh, and is this time the real deal? Uh, that's one of the questions we'll address today, whether this is the real deal, whether this is the end of Israel's ongoing political deadlock, and what does it all mean for Benjamin Netanyahu's future to make sense of it all? Once again, we're really fortunate uh, to have 
uh, be, to be joined today by Haaretz's Amir T-Bone. Now, Amir, thanks for your patience through our many housekeeping items. There's a lot going on this week, certainly a lot going on for you. And I really, oh, yeah. really appreciate your being here. Thanks, thanks again for joining us. Happy to be here with you. Um, you know, the situation here is uh, unfolding and uh, we're still not sure what's going to happen, honestly. Uh, everything is moving uh, fast as we speak. Um, right now, you know, it's 9, 10 p.m. here. We still don't have a new government. Maybe, you know, in the coming hour it will be announced and maybe not at all. I mean, all the options are on the table right now. So, uh, uh, if something breaks during our webinar, I will be sure to update. But for now, everything is still a bit speculative. Well, with that, Amir, maybe you could just start by walking us back through the past few weeks. How did we even get from one moment at the start of last month's 11-day war between Israel, Hamas, uh, Islamic Jihad, in which Bennett says he can't join a change government with Lapid, and now Bennett making this dramatic yeah. televised address this weekend saying he actually is flip-flopping and intends to do just that. How did we get here? Yeah, so let's go first of all to um, the electoral history of the past two years. You know, David, in most countries, if you approach a person for a political discussion and you mention the phrase, the first election, usually they'll assume maybe you're talking about the first election in the history of the country, which in the Israeli case would be, you know, right after the country's foundation when David Ben-Gurion won an election. But here today in Israel, when you tell someone the first election, everybody automatically understands that you're talking about the election of April 2019, uh, more than two years ago, which began this endless cycle of elections that we've been stuck in and maybe it will be resolved now, maybe, I'm not sure yet. I want to remind you and our viewers that in that election, April 2019, Naftali Bennett, the leader of the Yamina party, Yamina means further to the right, did not pass the electoral threshold. Two years ago, this guy fails to make it into the Knesset, right? We have in Israel the electoral threshold. It's basically a law that says that in order to win any representation in the Knesset, a party needs to receive around 3% of the vote. He failed to clear that threshold. It was a humiliation for him. And people said this is the end of Naftali Bennett's time in politics because he was already on the trajectory to go up and now he doesn't, he doesn't even make it into the Knesset. And then a miracle happened to Naftali Bennett. And that miracle was a Victor Lieberman's refusal to enter a Netanyahu-led government after that election. And we, then we started the endless cycles. And in the last election that we had, election number four, two months ago, Bennett's party received seven seats, which is not a very impressive result, but it placed him at the perfect position, basically to be the kingmaker for either a government with Netanyahu or what we call a change government without Netanyahu. And he played his cards up until this point pretty smart. First of all, he said, I will try to go with Netanyahu because we have a right-wing alliance and I want to give it a chance. Um, and he knew that the chance that Netanyahu would actually succeed to form a government is very low. And it's not because of Bennett. It's because the overall, the block of parties that is consisted of Likud and all the religious parties, these are today the forces that support Netanyahu, Likud and all the religious and ultra-Orthodox far-right parties, together one with Bennett only 59 seats, right? And the magic number you need to form a government is 61. So they were short two fingers. Netanyahu had a solution for that. 
he wanted to base his coalition on the United Arab List. This is a small Islamist party that used to belong to what we call the Joint List, right? The Joint List, this party that represents the uh, uh, majority of the Arab-Israeli society. And the Islamists broke away from the Joint List. I won't go into the entire history of why that happened. Maybe, David, you can ask about that later. Um, and Netanyahu wanted to use their four seats to get from 59 to 63. But the far-right elements within his uh, uh, you know, uh, coalition-to-be, this is the party of Bezalel Smotrich and of the Kahanists, and these are people that Netanyahu works, ec worked extra time to bring into the Knesset to the first place, to make sure that these Kahanists, far-right, you know, gay-hating, it, it, women back to the kitchen kind of ideology, that these people would have representation even. This was his making. And they rewarded him by saying, we will not sit in a coalition with any Arab party in any formation. So Netanyahu failed to form a government. He had 28 days after the election and he failed. Then Yair Lapid was given the opportunity to form a government. And there was already significant progress towards this change coalition. It's a very strange coalition ideologically, ideologically, we'll talk about it in a second, you know, stretching all the way from Meretz on the left to Yamina on the right. And then the operation in Gaza began. The, the, you know, the tensions in Jerusalem exploded. Uh, I can tell you, I'm, I'm speaking to you tonight from my home in Kibbutz Nachal Oz, which is the closest place in Israel to Gaza City. We are less than a mile from Gaza, right on the border. Um, and we were seeing it coming when, you know, when we saw what's happening in Jerusalem, there was a clear understanding here in our community that, you know, we're going towards a, a messy time. And Bennett said, okay, now that there is a war going on in Gaza and everything is burning in the country, I'm taking a step back from this change coalition. And I think this was a deliberate move. I think this was not a, a, a real kind of, a, you know, decision, decision to disengage, but a deliberate move to take down some of the pressure that he was facing from the right. And once the operation was over, thank you, President Biden, for intervening and bringing a ceasefire after 11 days. Uh, as a resident of the Gaza border area, because of that intervention, I was able to go back home, and <laughs> which was nice. Um, once that was over, Bennett uh, uh, said, OK, at, at the end of the day, we are still facing, except for the security situation, very, very serious problems in this country. And the way to solve them is to form a government now. And so the negotiations came back and we are in the midst of it. We'll see what happens. We have basically one more day, you know, 24 hours and a little change for Lapid and Bennett to announce that they have achieved the government. And you, you say one more day because that's the end of Yair Lapid's mandates yeah. uh, to, to, form, to form a coalition. So let's unpack, uh, first of all, what are all the pieces to this coalition in, in formation? And, and frankly, how could it all go right or how could it all go wrong, maybe, is the, is the, is the question to, uh, to unpack. Particularly, I, I think it's worth exploring Naftali Bennett and his motivations. One would think this is an insanely risky gamble, right? Uh, I'm curious yes. if you could talk about what does this mean if it goes right for Bennett? For, what's at stake for Naftali Bennett? And then I, I wonder uh, if you could speak a, a word about what's at stake, not only for Bennett, but for other members of Yamina, uh, the Yamina faction right now, where really only it takes just one. Uh, I'll, I'll just note that our Israel, our, our Israel fellow Nimrod Novik on Twitter and 
and all of our staff conversations will will not let us forget the dirty trick of 1990, where you have one member of Knesset, uh, where you think you have a government, but just that one member brings it all down. Maybe you could unpack and explain everything I just mentioned. What does it all mean that there could be just one, and what's at stake for Naftali Bennett in all of this? Okay, so uh, these are a lot of questions, David. I will try Sorry, to... Sorry, I apologize. But I feel you because this is a crazy situation. Agreed. First of all, you asked me what are the components of this coalition. Like I said, this is a very strange coalition that is not ideologic, ideologically coherent, but represents different streams and uh, ideologies in Israeli society. And I think it's united by basically two big principles. Number one, getting rid of Netanyahu. And this is an urgent issue because um, Netanyahu is like that, uh, I don't remember which, I think it was British or you know whatever the nationality, but like that big ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal a few, uh, three months ago. You remember that? Basically causing a traffic jam in the entire uh, uh, world global supply. And until you could remove that ship, you could not get the, you know, the traffic to flow in the Suez Canal. And it was a big, heavy ship, and it was stuck deep in the mud, and you needed to make all kinds of strange um, and weird and, and, and kind of unexpected moves to get it out there. Netanyahu is that ship, and as long as he is stuck in the prime minister's office, the Israeli political system is going to be stuck and go to round after round after round of elections, because Netanyahu, and we've seen this, we've had four elections in two years, this is enough by now to reach this conclusion, Netanyahu is not able to win a majority for his Likud and religious parties uh, uh, camp. They're not able to reach the magic number of 61. And at the same time, if the other side does not form a government and replace him, and they've had several opportunities and failed to do it, he's not going to go anywhere. He's not going to voluntarily say, I failed four times to form a government. I've been prime minister for 12 years now. I've done what I've done. I haven't done what I haven't done. It's time to move aside and let someone else and, and end this traffic jam. He's not going to do that. He wants to cling on to power, mostly for legal reasons, because of his uh, corruption trial that is ongoing now in Jerusalem. And he's facing three uh, charges, uh, uh, three different cases, you know, charges of uh, bribery and fraud and uh, breach of trust. And so he's not going to move voluntarily. If you don't get the ship, you know, with whatever kind of uh, uh, arrangement that you can do. But if you don't move it from there, everything will still be stuck. And so this is the main understanding of all the political players who want to replace Netanyahu right now, is that you have to reach a compromise and you need to get to a situation where Meretz on the left and Yamina on the right uh, can sit together. And you need to reach a situation where at least one of the Arab parties, the, most likely the United Arab List, these Islamists that Netanyahu basically made them kosher by negotiating with them, and now the rest of the right wing is willing to come along. Which, by the way, I think is a good development for Israeli politics. I think it's time that we will have Arab politicians involved in coalitions and maybe even in the government itself. I think it will be a good step for repairing uh, relationships between Jews and Arabs in Israel. So I'm happy that this is part of the discourse right now. But they will have to cooperate with Avigdor Lieberman, who just a few years ago, his main issue in, in the political sphere, his main election campaigns, was always about incitement against the Arabs. So all of these different players are going to have to find a way to work together. 
uh, Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz are going to have to sit together in the same government and work together all the time, even though there is very, very strong animosity between the two of them because they used to be political partners, they ran in the same party, and then Gantz uh, basically blew apart the, this party and went with Netanyahu for their failed experiment of a government. So all of this history will have to be put aside and a lot of ideological issues will have to be put aside in order for this government to be formed and basically to open the Suez Canal of Israeli politics for traffic. Now, specifically on Bennett and Yamina, David, I'll try to be brief. For Bennett, there is a risk no matter what he does. If he manages to form this government and the government uh, is a disappointment to the Israeli public, it doesn't last for too long, uh, it's seen as a failure, this will be the end of his political career because in the hardcore right wing, people will be angry at him for going to a government with some of the left wing parties and, you know, with the centrists like Lapid and Gantz. Um, and he will lose his kind of base and he will not win anything to compensate for it. But I think on the, but then of course, there's also the option that the government will be successful and stable and, uh, and be seen as a, as a good uh, step for Bennett. And then he could win new voters and maybe even bring back some of those who are disappointed. But David, there is also a big risk for Naftali Bennett not going for this move right now. Because if Israel goes to a fifth election, I'm not sure Naftali Bennett will pass the electoral threshold. We could go all the way back to the first round in April two years ago when he failed to even win a single Knesset. Because the people in the right wing who are already angry at him, he's already been exposed. To them, he's, he was already willing to make the move. But if he doesn't now take the opportunity to be prime minister with his hands and you know, hold on to it for dear life, he will not be prime minister again. This is not something that you can campaign on and for years sell yourself to the Israeli public as someone who is, you know, needs to be the next prime minister, needs to replace Netanyahu, needs to take the, the leadership. And then when you have an opportunity to do it, to find all kinds of excuses why you're not going to actually do it. Uh, if you're not willing to be prime minister now, there is no reason that you will be prime minister in the future as well. This is something that you either take or it doesn't get offered to you again. There is huge pressure on the other members of his party. You know, there are seven overall. One of them already announced that he's not coming into this government. So there are six left. Uh, and he needs the fingers. He needs the support of each and every one of them in the critical vote on the government if it is formed next week. And so there is a big battle for their uh, uh, support right now. My sense is, is that um, if Naftali Bennett will decide that he's actually going for this move, and if there is a solution for the uh, ego of his main partner, Ayelet Shaked, who sees herself as a potential prime minister as well, and she needs to get some kind of a compensation package here, if these two issues are resolved, I think all the other members will vote with the party in favor of this government. Terrific answer. So um, I do want to remind our audience that uh, to ask a question, uh, you can just do so by by putting your question in the Q&A box. We already have a number of really, really uh, terrific questions, which I'm going to get to in, in just a moment. But I do want to take a step uh, back to, to go back to what the other option was, which was going with Netanyahu. Uh, we've had a number of questions already that you know, was there really an option here for Netanyahu to form a government? Uh, was there an option for Netanyahu to step down, as had been suggested, um, in order to form a solidly right-wing government? Is that is that real? And of course, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about 
what Netanyahu is thinking right now, what is he doing right now in order to try to salvage uh, a possible government or to upend this emerging coalition deal? Yeah, so the idea of Netanyahu forming a government, um, it relied on basically two scenarios. One was bringing the Islamists to align themselves with Likud and the religious right-wing parties. This is not such an insane idea because the Islamists on issues of religion and state and you know, cultural issues, uh, they actually have a lot in common with the ultra-Orthodox and the far right, you know, uh, LGBT, women's rights, all of that stuff, you know, they do see eye to eye. But because the far right elements that Netanyahu himself brought into the Knesset were so strongly against any kind of cooperation with Arab politicians, this fell apart. The other option was what we call in Israel defectors. You know, if Netanyahu and Likud and all the religious parties have 59, how do you get to 61 without the Arab politicians? You need two members of Knesset from anti-Netanyahu parties to decide to uh, basically, you know, uh, betray their own parties, become freelancers and join a Netanyahu-led government. Um, the main place where I think Netanyahu was hoping to get those defectors was the party of Gidon Saar, New Hope, Tikva Hadasha. This is an ideologically right-wing party um, that shares a lot of Likud's, I would say, old ideological positions, because today Likud doesn't really have an ideology. It's about uh, a personality cult of Netanyahu. But New Hope is filled with former Likudniks who adhere to the right wing, you know, uh, uh, principles of the party. And Netanyahu was hoping to maybe lure two defectors from there. So far, he has failed to do it. And so the, the door for him to form a government has really been shut. You've probably seen a, lot of, seen a lot of spins in the media about offers he was making to Gibbon Saar and to Benny Gantz. Uh, to me, all of that is completely detached from reality. The main thing Netanyahu is trying to do right now, David, and this is the reason why you're seeing all these stories in the media that he offered something to Gidon Saar and he offered something to Benny Gantz and he offered something to Bennett or Shaket. What he's trying to do right now is to sabotage the other side's efforts to form a government. He wants to create an atmosphere of mistrust and suspicion between all of these different elements of the change government, which, like I said, is a very difficult government to form. You have a lot of small parties with different ideologies competing for a limited number of cabinet positions. And so every time he throws one of those spins into the discussion, he is adding a little more suspicion into what is happening on the other side. And his main goal is to lead them to a situation where they fail to form a government and we go to election number five. What does it give Netanyahu? It gives him, first of all, more time in office, you know, because in Israel, as long as the as long as a new government has not been formed, he remains in place. We go to another round. Maybe the results will be a little better for him. Maybe the results will be the same and we'll have to go to election number six. Uh, this is what he's counting on. And for him, it's important mostly, again, because of the legal situation, because he enjoys uh, the privilege of being a defendant who is also the prime minister of Israel. And this affects a lot of the schedule of his trial. And I think he thinks it also impacts the way the judges look at the situation. And he hopes to continue to, well, his main hope was to form a government and cancel the, the legal, uh, uh, and to cancel his trial altogether. This was what he was really hoping to achieve in these election rounds. But having failed to do that, he at least hopes to continue to go to the courtroom as a sitting prime minister. He's afraid of the day that he will have to face the judges without that kind of armory on him. So you, you really touched upon how this potential coalition 
being formed relies on very strange bedfellows who normally would not be be seen together. Uh, we've had a lot of questions come in from your comments about how uh, having the United Arab List uh, uh, supportive, perhaps from the outside of, of, of this government, might improve uh, Jewish Arab coexistence. We have a question actually from Trudy Rubin of the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, saying, you know, if the government is formed, what would it mean to have have them as a factor, United Arab List? And can you elaborate on how this, how you could see this improving Arab Jewish relations? Uh, and what would uh, he likely have to ask for? I think that's a reference to Mansour Abbas. Yeah, yeah, Mansour Abbas, the leader of this party. Um, so uh, let's break this down because there are uh, several questions. Um, what would be their participation in the government? There are several different models that are possible. One option is that they vote in favor of the government and they also get uh, some kind of a representation in the government itself, maybe a minister, maybe a vice minister. I think this is not the likeliest scenario, but it is being discussed. The second option is that they vote in favor of the government and they don't become part of the government. They are, after they vote for it, you know, when the government is sworn in, they give their support from outside, which is like what Yitzhak Rabin had with the Arab parties in his government in the 1990s. There was a political alliance, but they were not technically in the government. Um, this would still mean that Mansour Abbas, the leader of the United Arabists, would uh, get control of some Knesset committees, uh, legislation that is important to his party would pass, budgets that are important for projects in the Arab sector would be under his control and would be guaranteed in the state budget. Of course, it, I mean, we assume there will be a budget. You know, the, the Netanyahu uh, government now has failed to pass a state budget for more than two years. We assume this new change government, one of the things they will change is actually pass a state budget. And then Mansour Abbas would also get what he needs over there. Um, so I think of the two models, this is the more likely one, which is that they support the government from the outside and they get clear uh, benefits in favor, whether it's, you know, through Knesset committees, budgets, legislation, uh, appointments, all of that stuff. Why do I think it would be good? We are at a very tense moment in the relationship between Jews and Arabs in Israel. We went through... Um, Terrible events here in Israel uh, in the last few weeks during the fighting in Gaza. Um, I can tell you that my uh, family was personally impacted by this because in uh, Lod, one of the mixed cities that saw the most violence, um, my wife's uncle, Igal Yoshua, a local Jewish uh, resident of the city, uh, was murdered by a mob, an Arab mob who uh, was, uh, um, you know, throwing stones and uh, attacking people in the streets. And he was driving home after work and uh, fell victim to this terrible violence. Now the, the security services and the police are investigating this uh, incident as a terrorism act. Uh, and these were, we saw scenes like this in many different places in Israel, uh, in Lod and in Akko. Uh, there was a case that was filmed live on television as it was happening in Batyam, where a Jewish mob almost murdered an Arab bypasser. And it was all caught on camera. These people with their faces clear from the camera, you know, almost lynching this person. So terrible violence that exploded uh, in the streets. And I think we urgently need to deal with the core issues that led to this. Uh, and I believe that it will be better dealt with if there is some kind of political partnership 
Uh, one of the main issues here is the crime in the Arab society in Israel, which is skyrocketing. You need the police to really clean the uh, Arab neighborhoods and villages of a lot of illegal weapons that have been accumulated by these crime organizations and arrest the people who are responsible for this violence. And uh, when I was getting uh, uh, calls from Arab friends to offer their condolences after what happened to my wife's uncle, a lot of them said, we suffer from the same people who did this to your family because these are violent uh, uh, criminals who, unfortunately, as long as they were only killing Arabs in their cities, in their neighborhoods, nobody in the government really cared. And, and now when the violence is, is now becoming also against Jewish citizens, everybody is waking up to it. And so this is an urgent issue that needs to be dealt with. And there is also an important background that you need to deal with, issues of education and infrastructure and housing that, that you have to deal with. And I have to say, there is also one reason for optimism in the realm of Jewish-Arab relations in Israel, and we kind of forgot about it. But during the year of COVID, when Israel was, uh, before the vaccines kicked in and really improved the situation, when Israel had a lot of cases and we had lockdown after lockdown, uh, we clearly saw the importance of the Arab sector in Israel through the health um, system, in the hospitals, in the community clinics, um, in, in, you know, and also in the vaccination drive, frankly. Um, and, and you saw this important partnership and, and, and cooperation that Jews and Arabs can have on a national project like this, of fighting this, this uh, plague. And I think it's important to find those energies again for cooperation between Jews and Arabs in order to fight these issues that are threatening the Arab society and also impacting the Jewish society. And I think it will be much better dealt with if there is some participation also of Arab leadership from the local level all the way to the government level. Thanks for that. And obviously our thoughts are with your family. It's a just truly a terrible, terrible uh, incident. Um, I, I have a lot of questions uh, that have come in about why Naftali Bennett getting the prime ministership when he's the, the fifth largest party in, in this government and what are the others uh, potentially yeah. demanding and could that be a source of tension or uh, misgivings from the from the other parties? Uh, yeah. What's the glue that holds this together and, and why why Bennett and not them? Why Bennett? Uh, because he is able to do it. Um, basically, in the current, if you look at the at the current makeup of the Knesset, um, you have fifty two seats of parties that are completely loyal to Netanyahu, and there is no use to even discuss the possibility of them aligning with the anti Netanyahu bloc. This is Likud and the ultra orthodox parties and the far right. That's fifty two seats out of one hundred and twenty. Right? You need sixty one for a majority. You have one hundred and twenty overall. So fifty two are not even in the game. You then have six seats that belong to the joint list. And the joint list uh, is still seen, uh, unfortunately, as more uh, difficult to work with than the Islamists because they come from a more nationalistic, ideological place. Not all the components of the joint list are the same on this. And I think, you know, out of the six joint list seats, there are two. Uh, this is the party of Ahmed Tibi that are actually really, you know, um, open for business and you could kind of deal with them as well. But but let's assume for a second you count the entire six as one block. Now you're at 58 seats that are either loyal to Netanyahu or difficult for the other side to work with. So that leaves you with 62 seats of, um, you know, 
the, the parties that oppose Netanyahu or at least are not completely loyal to him. And within those 62 seats, the uh, only person, I think, who can lead a government that will have the support of all the six, well, now it's 61 because one member of Bennett's party is not in the game. Um, so out of all the 61 seats for the parties that are not completely loyal to Netanyahu and that are not uh, the joint list, I think Bennett is the compromise candidate that everyone can get behind. Uh, because Gidon Saar, as a leader of a right-wing party, said, I'm not going to sit under a left-wing prime minister. And so if, he's, if Bennett is prime minister, then, you know, he, he, he's uh, living up to that uh, promise. And Bennett also said, I'm not going to sit under a, a you know, left-wing government. And if he's on top, then you also have his six supporters. Those are 12 seats that you urgently, you know, need to form a government. Now, Bennett is not getting everything that he wanted because he is agreeing to a rotation deal with Yair Lapid. And as part of that deal, at the end of the day, if the government survives and makes it to uh, the year 2023, uh, Bennett will no longer be prime minister. He will switch places with Yair Lapid. He will become foreign minister and Yair Lapid will replace him in the prime minister's office. Bennett and Lapid have a good personal relationship. They sat in the government before in 2013 to 2015 under Netanyahu. They basically forced each other on Netanyahu. Um, Netanyahu wanted to form a coalition with Yair Lapid and the, the ultra-Orthodox, and Lapid said, I'm only coming into the coalition with Bennett. This was called at the time the Brit Ha'achim, the Brothers uh, uh, um, Alliance, because uh, these were two young politicians who call each other Achi, like my, my bro, uh, and so this is stuck in the public discourse. And now they are just uh, rebuilding it. So I think Bennett really is a compromise candidate here. It's not that everybody else is so happy about this arrangement, David. Let's be honest. I, Benny Gantz, who has eight seats, and Victor Lieberman, who has seven, see themselves as uh, worthy of being prime minister, not at the same level as Bennett, 10 times more than him. They, they think they are 10 times more worthy than Naftali Bennett to be prime minister. But the glue that is holding this together is the desire to get rid of Benjamin Netanyahu. And everybody assumes that once Netanyahu is out of the political arena, uh, the cards will be reshuffled and maybe new opportunities will open. And I think there is also a realization within, you know, deep down with these politicians that Netanyahu is becoming dangerous to the very foundations of Israeli democracy. This is no longer a political game. This is not only about you know, a, a winning power and getting rid of your rival and, uh, you know, all in the game. There is a sense that Netanyahu is breaking the rules of the game and is uh, intent on destroying it. And so there is a sense of urgency of removing him from office. And I think that's the main glue behind this weird coalition, if it is eventually really formed. Not sure. a given, not promised at all. Even now, 40 minutes into our uh, Zoom, they're still talking. So what happens once he is gone? We had a question from uh, Max Siegel asking about how Netanyahu's ongoing legal saga uh, might impact the coalition. Um, is this the end of Netanyahu? Is this the uh, how does the Likud recover if indeed uh, a, a, a change government is formed? I cannot predict the future. I don't know what Netanyahu will do if such a government is formed. Everything that uh, he's been briefing the media um, it points in one direction. Uh, he says he will remain the leader of Likud and the leader of the opposition and will fight this government in the Knesset uh, and, and try to create uh, cracks and uh, disagreements within this coalition and bring it down. That's totally possible. 
it's also possible that he will decide to to leave politics. I don't know. Some people say, you know, if if he loses power, he will leave the country. And I can't predict the future right now. He says he will remain in the opposition and fight this government. Maybe that will be good for the government because as long as everybody remembers that Netanyahu is waiting in the opposition for this whole thing to collapse, it will give them motivation to remain together even through the terrible fights and disagreements that they are going to have in this kind of coalition. The threat of Netanyahu returning will be so scary that they will say, you know what, okay, we have to somehow find a way to work together. Right, and the legal process is still expected to take quite quite some time. Yeah, yeah, it will take two or three years. These are this is a very difficult case, and if you look at previous uh, uh, cases uh, of senior politicians, Ehud Olmert, um, Moshe Katsav, uh, you know, these these issues take years. Um, but I think for Netanyahu, the main concern, the main fear, is that if he loses the grip that he has right now on on the political system uh, and the power that comes with the prime minister's office. That first of all, uh, he will come to the court a weaker man. And second of all, maybe other people will decide to speak up and testify who have not done so until this point because of the power that he holds in his hands. So, uh, uh, you know, not surprisingly, we have a lot of questions about what this means for the Israeli-Palestinian issue, um, for the notion of two states. Uh, what uh, a Bennett-led government with so many competing factions could actually do, but also not just from, on the Israeli-Palestinian issue broadly, but specifically in, in, after yet another conflict between Israel and Hamas, what sort of policies um, do you envision this Bennett-led government being able to advance, if at all, on the Palestinian issue generally and, and specifically with, relate, with, with regard to Gaza? Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to say one thing which I don't think will happen under his government, and that is annexation. Um, I think for several reasons. First of all, because there will be center-left components in the government that will completely veto and rule it out. Second of all, because even the right-wing, some of the right-wing elements in this uh, government, um, specifically Gidon Saar, made what I think is a very smart and responsible statement on this. Gidon Saar said... Um, a government that I will be part of will respect Prime Minister Netanyahu's promise to the Trump administration, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain to withhold annexation in return for the Abraham Accords. So, and of course, with Biden in Washington, I mean, you combine all that together, this is off the table. Uh, I also don't think this government will uh, evacuate any settlements or sign a peace deal. That's not in the cards either, because this is not the mandate the government is looking for. This government will basically say, we want to manage the conflict for several years, try to keep it, you know, from exploding, um, maybe give some, uh, a, you know, a, a more, I don't know, work permits to Palestinians in Gaza to come and work in Israel to improve the economy there. Maybe try to get some kind of international momentum behind the move of, uh, rep, you know, rebuilding Gaza in return for Hamas giving up some of the weapons arsenal, all kinds of these ideas. Uh, a port for Gaza, you know, a seaport for Gaza on Egyptian uh, on the Egyptian coast in northern Sinai that will be under uh, international uh, control and under Israeli intelligence supervision. All kinds of ideas that are more economic in nature, that are focused on improving the quality of life and that don't touch on the sensitive political issues. Um, this is going to be a very difficult challenge, of course, because uh, it's not like the world is just going to stop for three years and, you know, the, 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 the Palestinians are just going to uh, disappear and the Arab world, uh, Iran, all of these challenges are going to remain. 
I, and I think for this government to deal with them, there will have to be a very, very good uh, a level of trust between the partners, because ideologically, they're not in the same place, and we know it. But Israel has had unity governments in the past. There were governments of labor and Likud that worked together. Um, you can go back to the 1980s, you know, Shamir and Peres working together, and there was the, the famous... Uh, uh, the, the government of the three prime ministers. It was Shamir from Likud and Peres and Rabin from Labour. Um, if you go to the days of the Second Intifada, Ariel Sharon as the leader of Likud takes over from Ehud Barak and immediately brings the Labour Party into his coalition. Um, and so it's not like there is no precedent for this kind of, uh, of uh, cross-ideological cooperation. It requires a level of trust between the political leaders, between the party leaders, to actually deal with these sensitive issues and not uh, step on landmines that will blow up the entire government. Right. And uh, the one thing we haven't touched on, um, I know we've been sort of jumping around the political spectrum, we haven't touched on the ultra-Orthodox uh, who are yes. being left out of this coalition. Yes. And I wonder, uh, you know, they've really hitched themselves uh, alongside uh, Netanyahu in the pursuit of a right-wing government. What does it mean for their uh, position going forward? If you ask me personally, David, as an Israeli citizen, what is my biggest hope if this change government is formed? It is that the ultra-Orthodox will stay in the opposition. Um, you know, you can argue whether, you know, about Netanyahu as a prime minister, you know, his strengths and his weaknesses, the good and the bad. I, nobody will convince me that there is anything good for Israel right now uh, coming out of the ultra-Orthodox parties being in power. Uh, during the year of COVID, their impact on Israel was disastrous because they pushed, um, you know, basically policies uh, that were against the national attempt to control the, the COVID uh, spread in the country. Uh, and um, then we had this terrible, heartbreaking disaster a few weeks ago in uh, Mount Meron in northern Israel, where 45 people were killed um, in a terrible, criminal, unnecessary uh, event. And now the ultra-Orthodox parties and Likud are fighting tooth and nail to stop uh, any attempt to form a, 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 a governmental a inquiry commission that will look into the reasons for this disaster. Um, yeah. and, and of course, there is the, the impact on, on the education, the fact that, the, you know, that these parties are fighting against uh, uh, the idea that ultra-Orthodox children in their education system will learn English and mathematics and science and basically condemning those kids to a life of ignorance um, and, and, and depriving them of economic opportunities. I really think it's time for them to go to the opposition. I think it, the, the main, it will be good for secular Israelis by, like myself. It will be even better, in my opinion, for the ultra-Orthodox population. Um, and, and I'm not saying, you know, that if there's a government without the ultra-Orthodox, it needs to be bad for the ultra-Orthodox population. I think the opposite. Um, and I think it's very important to integrate the ultra-Orthodox population in, in the Israeli economy and in larger parts of Israeli society and, uh, and to fight against any kind of discrimination against the ultra-Orthodox society um, and, and really to, to give uh, every Israeli citizen, including these two big minority groups, the Arab population and the ultra-Orthodox, a sense that they belong here and this is their home. Um, but the ultra-Orthodox parties, for um, reasons, I think, of corruption... Um, and uh, and just um, you know uh, being uh, high on power, uh, it's time for them to go to the opposition for a few years. I hope it will happen. So we we have a, a questions about if this new government is formed, what its relationship might be like uh, with the 
U.S., uh, United States and with the Biden administration, Deirdre Shesgreen of USA Today asks if you could address what the departure of Netanyahu and the rise of Bennett Lapid would mean for Biden administration U.S. policy. How much of a learning curve will there be for Biden if he's suddenly dealing with Bennett instead of Netanyahu as prime minister? How do you think Bennett would approach relations with the U.S.? Okay, so uh, first of all, I don't think anyone in the White House will shed tears if uh, Netanyahu is no longer prime minister, or even though Naftali Bennett is not necessarily going to be easier on the actual issues that define the relationship. I don't think he will be easier to work with on Iran. I think his position will be just as tough. On the Palestinian issue, he might actually be more to the right than Netanyahu and and, and more uh, uh, difficult to reach uh, agreements with. But I think with Netanyahu, there is a sense that um, he's looking for confrontation with the administration. And uh, and there's also just a sense that, um, you know, he has taken a side in American politics. He's aligned himself with the Republican Party, with the Trump forces in American politics. Uh, and Bennett will be a fresh face, a new person. Um, it's easier to build new trust than to rebuild trust with someone that you've been... Uh, 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 you know, uh, confronted by and uh, and insulted by uh, for so long. And also, I think the makeup of the government is important because in Israel, we don't have a presidential system like you guys have in the United States. And so uh, when you build a coalition government, all the pieces matter. And so in this government, yeah, Bennett is maybe more right-wing than Netanyahu, but the foreign minister will be Yair Lapid. The defense minister will remain Benny Gantz, who is a centrist and I know has a good relationship with the Biden administration. He's going to Washington this week to talk about uh, what happened in Gaza and the Israel security needs in, in, the, uh, you know, in the aftermath of that conflict. Uh, and so I think overall, it will be a fresh a, a, a start. It will be an opportunity to build a good relationship and there will be elements within this government that I think the administration will work with very well. Uh, and I think Naftali Bennett uh, has an opportunity here to be, uh, you know, a right-wing prime minister, but to learn from the mistakes of Netanyahu, not to politicize the relationship, not to take sides in American politics, uh, to, if you have a disagreement, deal with it respectfully and smartly and strategically, first of all, within, you know, a, a, a private conversations and not look for a public confrontation. So I, I see that, uh, you know, we touched on the Palestinian issue and uh, how it might relate to Gaza. I have a number of questions that have come through specifically about the recent developments in Jerusalem and whether a new coalition would impact the developments in Jerusalem uh, with regard to the, you know, pending evictions in Sheikh Jarrah uh, or in Silwan. Uh, and of course, we have other planned developments in places like Yvata Matos and Atarot. Um, yeah. This will be one of the landmines I mentioned earlier, that it will be very difficult for this government to defuse. Um, I think they, um, in, in the, you know, there are three possible ways for, for the government to avoid stepping on the landmine. Option number one is the Biden administration, stepping forward and asking the government, listen, we are now giving you, we're replenishing Iron Dome, which is very important for Israel, not because of Gaza, but because of Lebanon, on the, because of Hezbollah, because every iron dome uh, 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 you know, missile that we use against Hamas is one less that we will have if, God forbid, there is a war in the north. 
and we are approving a new arms uh, deal, uh, you know, $735 million. And we are protecting you from criticism within our own party in Congress, right? We saw Biden stand up against the more uh, progressive Democrats and, uh, and express his support for Israel and give Israel backing. Um, and of course, in the UN Security Council, the administration vetoed three uh, decisions against Israel. And, and you know, we can go on and on. And we ask you to also make life easier for us by trying not to move forward with some of these controversial issues in Jerusalem. And then this will be the perfect excuse for the government to say, well, you know, we need the Americans right now. There's negotiations with Iran. We want the Americans to consider our position in the negotiations. We want to have an open line to the White House to express our concerns about the Iran talks. We don't need to pick a fight over Sheikh Jarrah. This is one option. Second option is that the court system in Israel helps the government uh, uh, avoid this. Uh, specifically on Sheikh Jarrah, we already saw a hint of that because there was supposed to be a decision by the Supreme Court on the eviction of these Palestinian families in, uh, in uh, Sheikh Jarrah. And the Attorney General basically told the Supreme Court that he has a recommendation from the security chiefs and the intelligence chiefs in Israel to delay this decision because basically if they don't, it will lead to a regional war. And the Supreme Court said, okay, we will, we will take it easy here. So I think that the only hope for the government to avoid an, um, an explosion over these issues is if it's either the Biden administration or the Supreme Court uh, intervening. If it's Biden, of course, uh, it will have to be in a way that the government can politically uh, go back to the Israeli public and say, look what we got in return. Okay, yes, we are withholding these moves and the right wing uh, will be angry and some of Bennett's own members of Knesset will denounce it. But it, Bennett will have to go back and say, look what I brought in return. You know, look what the Americans are, are helping us with. Look what we're getting. Look at the dialogue and the intimacy and the support. Um, so, you know, we'll see if that actually happens. Great. So uh, we, we have just a, a little bit of time left, but I have two excellent questions that we've received that I think it's important for us to get to. Uh, the first from Naomi Weiner is how will this change coalition impact relations with diaspora Jewry, in your view? Ah, uh, this is a great, great question. Uh, if the ultra-Orthodox are not in the government, uh, obviously it could lead to good developments in this very, very important field of uh, relationships between Israel and the diaspora. Uh, if Yair Lapid is foreign minister, I know this is a personal issue of, of importance for him. This is a high priority for him, and I think he will invest in it as uh, a foreign minister, and he will take this as a, you know, as a strategic priority. Uh, the Labour Party, as part of the coalition agreement, is supposed to get the diaspora ministry, which is in charge of some of these relationships. And um, I don't know, maybe they will even put Gilad Kariv, who is a reform rabbi, to, as a minister, and that will be a historic first, and obviously that won't be bad. At the same time, I also don't think the expectations need to be too high, because again, this is um, a heterogenic coalition uh, with that also has some religious forces within it, you know, in Bennett's party, and uh, I think two of uh, Gidon Saar's members of Knesset. Uh, so I'm not sure they will uh, immediately adopt all the priorities and wishes of American Jews of, on issues of, of, you know, religious matters. Uh, but I think the dialogue will be much better. There will be some changes that will be enacted. And this will at least be a priority versus the, the last few governments under Netanyahu that basically said, American Jews, thank you for all your donations. Now step aside so we can talk to our evangelical friends. Right. 
So finally, uh, we have a question from one of our board members, Sheldon Ulster, who says, given what happened with the Netanyahu-Gantz rotation agreement, is there a reasonable basis to expect that Lapid would ever get to succeed Bennett under the new potential coalition? I think yes, because uh, Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett seem to have a good personal relationship. Um, they seem to have, uh, you know, really a friendship uh, between them and the mutual appreciation. Uh, when they had this deal with Netanyahu a few years ago in 2013, Netanyahu tried to play them against each other, to bring one of them without the other, and they stuck together. Um, and so if you assume that Netanyahu's behavior of lying to Benny Gantz, cheating Benny Gantz, um, dishonoring a written agreement with Benny Gantz, and in the course of doing all that, using the state budget as a hostage, refusing to, to pass a state budget so he can force an election. If you assume that is normal political behavior, then you assume Bennett will do the same, Lapid would have done the same, Gantz would have done the same. But if you assume this is a Netanyahu issue, and that actually other politicians can be, I won't say honest, that's a strong word for a politician, but can be fair to each other on some issues and respect agreements, then there, you can see why there is a... a, a this attempt to form another rotation government. And maybe both Bennett and Lapid will have a motivation to show the public that not all the politicians are Netanyahu. Great. Uh, Amir, thank you once again. Uh, the amount of questions that we have in the Q&A, I think we're cl closing in on 80 questions. We clearly wow. do not have time <laughs> to so, get, so the, to, get so to there the... Are, the so, so David, there are two solutions. Number one, you guys can invite me again. Number two, all the, I'm sure all the answers to people's questions can be found on haaretz.com. So go to haaretz.com, subscribe if you're not a subscriber, and you will find the answers in the stories we publish by our great writers here in Israel, our correspondent in Washington, Ben Samuels. Um, really, all, I'm sure all the answers <clears throat> are there. So go and well, find them. If you're going to take the time to plug, so will I, uh, that <laughs> we can uh, encourage you all back again tomorrow night 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific for our special program, Realistic Reset. Again, a stellar lineup. I really hope you don't miss it. You can register at ipf.li slash 2 June. And again, we're going to have another political conversation with Barack Ravid and Tal Schneider uh, about 48 hours from now, Thursday at 4 p.m., where we may see uh, whether there is a government or not. We, we, we may uh, uh, update this conversation and hopefully get to more of those 80 questions uh, live in that conversation. Again, Thursday at 4 p.m., you're going to get information in your email uh, about that program. And again, thanks so much for joining. You can find a recording uh, of this uh, session uh, on our website and uh, where you get your podcasts uh, with our Israel Policy Pod podcast. Uh, and again, stay tuned. Uh, for uh, an email about these upcoming programs. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow night uh, and for an update Thursday afternoon. Amir, thanks so much for, for joining us again on such short notice. Really appreciate it. Thank Terrific. you, guys. Goodbye. Thanks, Amir. Bye-bye.